you take your Bibles and turn to John 13, Gospel of John, chapter 13. If you're visiting with us, we're studying through this Gospel of John. Take a few more verses every week to see what the Lord would teach us here. Today we'll be considering verses 31 down to the end of the 13th chapter. The uh, situation is that Jesus uh, is in the upper room with the disciples the night before he's crucified, the night that he's going to be betrayed in a little while, and Judas has just left. And that's what's going on here. By way of introduction, I was reading uh, John Stott's book. John Stott is a retired pastor. He writes a lot. Maybe you've read some of these things. He's very good books. <clears throat> is a book called The Cross of Christ, and he introduces that book by a description of a painting by Holman Hunt, the leader of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, a painting entitled The Shadow of Death. I've looked for this painting. I haven't found it yet to see it, but listen to Stott's description of this painting. It depicts the inside of the carpenter shop in Nazareth. Stripped to the waist, Jesus stands by a wooden trestle on which he has put down his saw. He lifts his eyes toward heaven, and the look on his face is one of either pain or ecstasy or both. He also stretches, raising both arms above his head. And as he does so, the evening sunlight streaming through the door casts the dark shadow in the form of a cross on the wall behind him, where his tool rack looks like a horizontal bar upon which his hands are crucified. The tools themselves remind us of the fateful hammer and nails. In the left foreground of the picture, a woman kneels among the wood chippings, her hands resting on the chest in which are the rich gifts of the Magi. We cannot see her face because she has averted it, but we know that she's Mary, and she looks startled, or so it seems, at her son's cross-like shadow on the wall. Now, Stott comments here that though the idea is historically fictitious, the theology is true. From Jesus' youth, in fact, from his birth, the cross cast a shadow ahead of him throughout his whole life. His death on the cross was central to his whole mission. And that's been the position of the church. The church has recognized that through the ages. Well, in our text this morning here in John 13... That shadow of the cross is looming very large and very dark in front of Jesus. As he talks here to the inner circle of his disciples in the upper room. In fact, it's now only a matter of hours before he'll be crucified. Twelve hours from now, he'll be dead already, hanging on the cross. So in this passage, Jesus explains some of the significance of that great event that looms ahead of him. First, something about its significance to his relationship to the Father, and then he tells them something of its significance in relationship to each other. 
Let me read it. Verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, that is when Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now. You will follow later. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Two truths that I'd like for us to hear from this text. The first is this, that God is pleased with Jesus. God is pleased with Jesus. Here in verse 31, we have a strange-sounding statement. Picture the situation here. Jesus knows that Judas has made arrangements to betray him. And yet Jesus, as we saw last week, continues to lavish Kindness on Judas. Sit him at the honored place, wash his feet. And Judas only hardens himself more and more against that, scorns that kindness, until finally he walks out the door to pursue his wickedness. Now if you were in that situation, what would you expect Jesus to say at this moment? Judas walks out the door. I'm sure we could think of many choice statements. In fact, the longer I thought about it, the better they got. Some really stinging statements about that so-and-so who could sit here with us, act like he's one of us. Do you know what he's up to? Well, we could figure out some great ones. Listen to what Jesus said, verse 31. Now, the Son of Man is glorified. What? Now, now that Judas has walked out the door, now the Son of Man is glorified. Jesus obviously has a different perspective on what's going on than we would tend to have. You know, we all dream of Moments of glory. Moments when all the work and the preparation of a lifetime come together perfectly in one great event and produce one glorious moment. I remember a few years ago at the Olympic time, wasn't it Whitney Houston that sang the song, made a hit of it? Give me one moment in time. All this preparation of a lifetime in one glorious event. You see, for Jesus, this is the moment. This is it. He had spoken often about my hour that's not yet come. No, my hour hasn't come yet. 
He talked many times, given glimpses of the fact that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now Judas walks out the door, and the events which will culminate in his passion have begun. Bruce Milne puts it this way. He says, with Judas' departure, the trap is sprung. The sequence of the arrest and trial and crucifixion is already set in motion. A succession in relation to which Jesus must be submissive. But this very submission is the glorifying of the Father through him and the completing of his work. That kind of explains verses 31 and 32. These strange-sounding verses. Here in these two verses, Jesus uses the word glorify in some form or another. As we read it, it sounds like too much. It's words heaped on words. He didn't go to the school of uh, make sure you vary your words where it doesn't sound repetitive. He keeps saying glorify, 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 glorify five times here in a, in a sentence or two. What's he saying? Well, let's look through these quickly here. Verse 31 and 32. These five instances. Let me discuss each one. The first one, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. In other words, what I just said. Jesus is saying, this is what I've come for. This is what I've prepared for. This is the point of my whole life. This is my crowning glory to go to the cross and finish what the Father has given me to do. This is my glory. That's what he said in the last chapter. He said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify yourself. Which brings us to the next statement where he says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. In other words, Jesus says, What is it that brings glory to my Father? Well, only one thing, that I do what he sent me to do. To go to the cross and redeem his people like he told me to. So that which is my greatest glory also is the greatest glory of the Father. Therefore, Jesus continues. So, if God is glorified in him, that is, in Jesus, in the Son, if God is glorified, Jesus says, in effect, if I have done the Father's will, if I have pleased the Father like I say that I have, so that he's glorified, then we go on. Fourthly, God will glorify the Son in himself. Here, Jesus is talking about the glory, taking up the glory that he had from eternity past. The same thing he said in chapter 7, where he said, I, 17, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. God will glorify his Son in himself. And how would anybody know for sure if that happens or not? Well, that's the fifth thing. God will glorify the Son and will glorify him at once. Here Jesus is referring to his resurrection, which is part of this whole process. As Peter later preached, he was not abandoned to the grave. He, his body did not see decay, but God raised him from the dead. 
As Paul wrote, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So to bring all these things together here, five times Jesus talks about glorifying himself, being glorified, the Father being glorified. To bring all that together, here's what he says. This is my moment in time. This cross which looms before me is the crowning act of glory for me. And it's also the glory of my Father that I should obey him, even to the cross. And because my Father is pleased, is glorified in this obedience, in the sacrifice that I'm about to make for sin, this is not going to be the end, but he is going to glorify me with the glory I had with him back before the beginning of time when I'm exalted to his right hand. And how will you know that that happened? Because he's going to glorify me at once. He will raise me from the dead, and you will see it. Well, that's exactly the same thing that the Apostle Paul talked about in Philippians 2, when he said that Jesus Christ, who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death. Death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, God is pleased with Jesus and his work on the cross. As we said, the cross has a, a vertical and a horizontal distinction. I'm not talking about the wood that's nailed together. I'm talking about in, in our concepts of them. And this is the vertical dimension here. This is how the cross is, is viewed and what its significance is in relationship with God. And what its significance is is that God the Father is glorified in his Son going to the cross. That's the point of his coming. And the Father shows his pleasure by raising the Son from the dead and exalting him back. To his right hand in heaven. And you may be saying, wait a minute, man, you have lost me here. What does all this interpersonal relationship between the Father and the Son have to do with me? Well, the answer is everything. That's what. Has everything to do with you. This is nothing less than our hope of salvation that God is pleased with Jesus' work on the cross. This is everything for us. It all hangs on this. Suppose you were to stand before God today. And he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What right do you have to stand in my holy presence? What, what would you say in that hypothetical situation? You say, well, God, I, I was born in a, in, in a good family, and, and, uh, and I was raised well. God would say, I know your father, and I know your mother. They're both sinners, and the truth is you were born a sinner too, and in fact, you've done pretty good at that throughout your life. But, but Lord, I tried hard to do what was right. He would say, yeah, I saw those times when you tried hard, sometimes for the wrong reason. But, but what about that whole pattern of your life that was going the opposite direction, that was doing everything different than what I wanted? 
But, but Lord, I've done many wonderful things. I've raised my family well. I've worked in the community. I've been active in the church. I was a good kid. Lord, I've really tried hard. And the Lord was saying, you've got a lot of praise for that too. You have your reward for that. You've got pats on the backs, what you were wanting. What I'm concerned about is all those other dark moments. All those wrong motives. All those things nobody saw when you thought them and said them and did them. All those things, the way that you treated your wife or the way that you railed on your kids or the way that you thought such wicked things and did such wicked things when nobody knew. What about all those? You see, God demands perfection. If we were stand before him and start rehearsing all of our record, he could pick it apart. He knows better. It's not good enough. It's not perfect. It's not holy. He's holy. Ah, but consider this scenario. Same question. Stand before God, the Holy One, and he says, what right do you have to be in my heaven? Why do you think you can stand in my holy presence? And suppose we said, Lord, the truth is I know that I was born a sinner, and from childhood it seems like everything I have ever done, no matter how hard I tried, has been tainted with that sin. And, and, and the more I've tried, the, the more I've seen how deep it goes in the wrong motives, and wrong desires and wrong strategies and the truth is god i would have to admit that i've broken every one of your laws in either my thoughts or my words or actually in my deeds uh, i'm afraid i would have to say that and i despise that evil i find in myself and, and, and i don't think i have any right to stand in your presence but but god i believe that you sent your son jesus and he walked in my shoes. And I believe that when he lived, he lived without any sin, that he was obedient even in the toughest times, even when it cost him going all the way to the cross, he still was obedient. And, 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 and God, I believe that when he went to the cross, he not only did it as an act of obedience to you, but that there on the cross, he paid for my sin. That he, there he made an atonement. He, he made a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice of his own body to meet the demands of justice, to pay the penalty for the sin that I've done. God, I believe that when he rose from the dead that you put your seal of approval on that. And so, Lord, I, I have to say that I stand here totally empty-handed. I don't have anything I know that I don't deserve to stand in your presence. My only hope is this, that I am trusting that Jesus is going to be enough. I am trusting that Jesus is good enough and what he did on the cross is payment enough to count for me. And that's my only hope. And, and if that's not good enough, I don't have anything else. Well, if that's the cry of your heart, I would tell you this morning, never in the history of the world did a man or woman or young person or child ever stand on such solid ground. Never has one's future been so bright and certain as the one who stands before the holy God empty-handed but trusting that Jesus is enough. For you see, God is pleased with Jesus. He is enough.
after Thomas Kelly wrote the great hymn about the cross, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. We've sung it lots of times. After he describes the crucifixion, he concludes with these words in the last stanza. Here, in the cross of Christ, here we have a firm foundation, here a refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation, his the name in which we boast, Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt, none shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Why? Because God is pleased with Jesus. Now, the second lesson that this text has to teach us is a bit different. But it's connected to the first. The second lesson is this. Jesus says to us, Little children, imitate my love then. Imitate my love. You know, it seems like no matter how wonderful the news is, uh, there's always a downside to it. There's always the inevitable but. Life is always full of trade-offs. You get something, you lose something. It must be how the disciples felt. Jesus talks of all the glory that he's facing in the cross, and yet... He goes on to say, in a little while, and I won't be with you any longer. And that's the downside. Oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? He's going to leave us. They didn't understand all about the glory. All they heard was, he's going to leave us. We're going to be alone. What are we going to do? We read on down through a passage to see that it begins to consume their thinking. Peter asked about it again in verse 36. He said, Lord, Lord where are you going? Jesus said, you can't come, Peter. And in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? And then Thomas said it again down in the next chapter. Lord, we don't even know where you're going. And Philip chimed in and he says, Lord, just show us the Father, would you? They're so afraid Jesus is going away. And what are they going to do? Jesus has no intention of leaving them unprepared. In fact, in the next few chapters here, we're going to see Jesus again and again preparing his disciples to live faithfully after his ascension back into heaven, to live, uh, to walk with him as faithful disciples. So he has a lot more to say to them. Though he has a little trouble saying it because they're so caught up in the fact that he's leaving. But in our text here, he has just the first principle that he lays before them. First principle, what it's going to be like when I'm gone. Here's what you need to know. Love one another. Imitate my love. Jesus says. Actually, he says it three times here in only two verses. Verse 34 and 35. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. He says it's his new commandment to us. Here it is. The new commandment. Love one another. Didn't I hear that that wasn't really new, that that was back in Leviticus already in the Old Testament? Yeah, it is. Back in Leviticus we read, love your neighbor as yourself. You thought that was a New Testament thing, didn't you? No. Love your neighbor as yourself. It was back there all, all along. So in what sense is it new then? Well, he goes on to tell him, he says, as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. And how had Jesus loved them? 
while he washed their dirty feet that they wouldn't do for one another. He lavished kindness on Judas even though he knew he was about to betray him. He's about to go to the cross to lay down his life for them. That's how he loved them. You see, Jesus raises the bar here, raises the standard a little higher. It's not love your neighbor like you want to be loved. I want you to love one another like I love you. We can't just agree, well, I'll love you a little, you love me a little, and we'll just agree to be kind of distant. He says, oh no, oh no. You look at not how he's going to love you. You not look not at how you want him to love you. You look at how I loved you. That's how I want you to love one another. Imitate my love. Dr. Boyce makes a comparison between the old love your neighbor law and Jesus' new command. Listen to how he compares them. He says, what was that love before this after all? A vague feeling of goodwill, a sense of pride in one's race that we're Israelites, or, or a need to defend a neighbor or to free a family member who had become a slave. Yes, it was all of those and perhaps a bit more. But it was not that measure of love seen in the fact that God, the God of the universe, would take human flesh and suffer and die for those who are ungodly in order that almost in spite of themselves those who hated God and tried to turn from him might still be redeemed from the chains of sin and brought into his glory now that's a different kind of love that's the new standard, Jesus says. Love one another like I have loved you. In that passage we quoted from Philippians 2 a few minutes ago about Paul saying how Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself and became a man and was obedient to the cross. Paul says all of that to try to make this same point. The verses right before that, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be exactly the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes into this whole thing, who being in God, emptied himself and went to the cross. That's what love looks like. In other words, Jesus says, little children, imitate my love. That's how you're to live when I'm gone. Imitate my love. Maybe you've noticed that may be beyond what comes natural for us. I don't think we just do this automatically, do we? This love of Jesus can only be lived out by our dependence upon his spirit. He gives us strength to obey such a command. This is a kind of love that we just don't find, especially for those who are unlovely. This is the love that's described in 1 Corinthians 13. You know that famous love chapter, don't you? Here it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. 
not boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but delights, rejoices with the truth, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. That's what the love of Jesus looks like, isn't it? may not be what our love looks like, but it's what Jesus' love looks like. We could say of Jesus as he deals with his disciples and as he goes to the cross for his disciples. Well, we could put Jesus' name right in there. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast. Jesus is not proud. He's not rude. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. That's how he loves us. Now he says, little children, you imitate that. In other words, he says, I want you to be able to put your name in there. Let's try it. Bert is patient. Now don't worry about me. You put your name in there. I am patient. Huh? I am kind. I do not envy. I do not boast. I am not proud. I am not rude. I am not self-seeking. I'm not easily angered. I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil. I rejoice in the truth. I always protect. I always trust. I always hope. I always persevere. I will never fail you. Oh. Really? When I tell you that when the Lord says that the fruit of his spirit is love, when the Lord says that the spirit sheds abroad in our hearts the love of Jesus, it spills out in relationship to one another, I'm telling you that this is what he has in mind, that we would look just like that. Our name would fit there as we imitate Jesus' love. You think I'm pushing a little too far? Well, later on, Paul talked to husbands about loving their wives. And what does he tell them? Husbands, love your wives as you would like to be loved. Well, no, that's not what he said. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his church and gave himself up. In other words, husbands, love your wives enough to go hang on a cross for them. Where do you get that notion? That's a pretty extreme statement. Well, you see, that's the principle that Jesus gives to every one of us. Imitate my love. Love one another enough to hang on the cross for one another. That's what I did for you. Like I've loved you. And you say, well, that's impossible. Yes, it is. It's impossible. We can't do that. Except that God has told us that the fruit of his spirit in us 
produces love. And God has told us that, his, that this is, is his will for us and therefore we must do it. He doesn't say, I have a great suggestion for you guys. While I'm gone, you, you might try working on this. It's not like that. New command sums up everything. New command, here it is. You love one another like I loved you. That'll take care of it. Not optional. Not optional. In fact, listen to what he says. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another like this. Francis Schaeffer in his book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, says this is frightening. This is frightening. It's as if Jesus turns to the world over here and says, I've got something to say to you unbelievers over there, you non-Christians. On the basis of my authority, I'm giving you a right. I'm giving you the right to look at this church, to look at these people who call themselves Christians, and to judge whether or not this Christian really is a Christian by watching how he loves others. say, well, that's not fair. I mean, the world's full of people who say the church is full of hypocrites. That's why I hate it. Now, that's just what Jesus said. You can sit here and play games with one another, but I give the world the right to look and to make that judgment. And Schaefer goes on, and we must not get angry if people say you don't love other Christians. We must go home and get down on our knees and ask God whether they might be right. And if they are, then they have the right to say what they said. As J. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher of a century ago, said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, not by the creed you recite. No. Not by the distinctive Christian clothes you wear. No. Not because you sing the right hymns. No. Not because you have the right ritual or the right order of worship. No. By this shall all men know you are my disciples by the fact that you love one another like I love. There's a modern contemporary writer put it quite bluntly, orthodoxy without obedience to this principle is so much humbug. It doesn't matter how right your theology is. It doesn't matter how you have every T crossed and every I dotted perfect. It doesn't matter if you don't love one another like Jesus loved. It's all a sham. It's a stench in the nose of the world that watches looking for the love of Jesus manifest somewhere. Well, make no mistake, this is not our natural tendency, not mine, not yours. 
Notice Peter's response here. Peter speaks for us pretty well. Jesus says all this great thing about this new commandment about loving. And how does Peter respond? All right, Lord. Boy, I don't know if we can do this, but Lord, help us. Peter responds by, by saying, Lord, where are you going anyway? <laughs> hey, Peter, weren't you listening? No, he's ready to go. He's just like us. I'm ready to go, Lord. I'm ready to fight, Lord. I'll defend you, Lord. Lord, I'll die for you. Jesus said, I didn't ask you to die for me. I asked you to die for one another. And, 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 and by the way, Peter, you're not going to die for me. I'm going to die for you. You're going to be out there denying me. See, we're just like Peter. We're ready to go. We're ready to do jobs. We're ready to work. We're ready to refine theology. We're ready to build buildings. But to love people when they stink, well, that's a little harder. Jesus says, little children, little children, imitate my love. Well, Peter learned that. John learned it. John wrote a whole book about it. First, the book of 1 John, that's what it's about. Peter learned it. You see, after Peter had gone to, with Jesus to the garden and fallen asleep three times when Jesus told him to pray. And after they came to arrest him, and Peter pulls out his sword, and he's ready to fight, and Jesus says, put away your sword. And then when they arrest him, Peter's running for his life. And then when they take Jesus to be tried, and Peter's standing out there, Three times saying, I, I don't know the man. I don't know. Don't look at me. Hey, I, I never heard of him. I'm not his disciple. Swearing is not his disciple. And even after Jesus was raised, Peter just said, I don't know where this all going. Man, I'm going fishing. Forget this. I'm going back fishing. Remember that? After Peter had fallen flat on his face a few times, he came to understand what the love of Jesus really looked like when Jesus met him there on the shores of Galilee in the last chapter of this book and said, Peter, do you really love me now? Peter, how much do you love me? And go and feed my sheep, Peter. Same thing he said back here. Love one another, Peter. After Peter come to see that he had no place to stand but the grace and the love of Jesus, then he learned so later when we go to Peter's writings, we hear him write things like this. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. And in another place, he says, above everything, love one another deeply. Is Peter talking? He had to learn the hard way. He had to taste grace before he could give it. Love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And God knows there's a multitude of sins among us that need to be covered over. Little children imitate. Jesus love. Love one another. All kinds of people call themselves Christians. But do you really love Jesus? And if you love Jesus, really, how would you show that? You see, you can't 
see him. You can't get your hands on him. He's in heaven. Well, John says, no, you haven't seen God, but if you love one another, God's love is in you. Jesus himself said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, then you did it to me. I read the prayer of Mother Teresa. It goes like this. Dearest Lord, may I see you today and every day in the person of your sick. And while nursing them, minister to you. Though you hide yourself behind the unattractive disguise of the irritable and the exacting, demanding, and the unreasonable, may I still recognize you and say, Jesus, my patient, how sweet it is. That's what's going on when Jesus says, little children, imitate my love. Love me enough to love one another. We're talking about the cross. The significance of the cross, the long shadow that it cast over all of our lives. On the one hand, there's this vertical dimension of the cross. The cross is the glory of Jesus and it's the glory of his Father because of the obedience of his Son to do what was necessary to purchase our redemption. And therefore, it becomes our glory because here we see that God is satisfied with Jesus and here we stand in his grace. But having learned that, having tasted of such grace, then there is a necessary horizontal dimension of how this plays out among us. It becomes the pattern of our lives. That we would act just like Jesus acted toward us, laying down our lives for one another, emptying ourselves of self for one another, seeking one another's good, not selfish gain that we, like little children, would imitate the love of our Savior by loving one another. That's the pattern of true disciples, whoever might call themselves Christians or sit in a pew. This is what true disciples look like. And I would suggest that the world knows the difference when it sees them. Amen. Let's pray. No, Father... None of us likes to be stripped of all of our pride and our self-sufficiency and our self-righteousness until we see that we are totally at your mercy. But Lord, I pray that you would bring every one of us to that place, no matter what it takes, that we would, not, that we would stop trusting ourselves and trust you. And I know, Lord, that it's only when we have come to have to drink 
so deeply of your grace in order to stand. It's only then that we begin to understand what it means to be merciful and gracious in how we deal with one another. Lord, we live in a land where there's a lot of Christianity. And there's a pitiful little bit of the love of Jesus being shown. As we divide up into teams and fire volleys at one another and compete and are arrogant, oh God, it must grieve your heart. May it grieve our hearts. Give us grace to live differently the world might see how profound your love that took you to the cross really is as they see it lived out among us.